Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. You know, I, res- I distinctly remember the day that I uh, asked Laura to marry me. I mean, how do you forget a day like that? Um, it kind of, kind of, you know, sears it in your mind. But um, there is something about the threshold moments of life where you know you're going to cross into a new season that you can, at times, remember them with vivid detail, sort of down to the, the to the moment. And um, I remember the place we had coffee. Like I can envision it right now. I can remember the the box of letters, most of which were written by her, but we were still looking through them. Um, I can remember um, my my morning routine, even getting dressed for the day. I was I was keenly aware that my life was going to change forever. Um, and that night, I had set aside, of course, my best suit. Um, it was hanging up, and I had made reservations at V Mertz, which was the swankiest place in town that I had no business and could not afford. Um, but I had like just enough money after buying the ring to go to dinner. That was about all I had. Um, and, and then for the day, because we were going hiking, um, I'm going to spend some time outdoors, I, of course, had my, my baggy cargo shorts. I mean, anybody remember? Cargo shorts, plenty of room, big pockets on the side, perfect place to hide that black box right down in the cargo short for later. And, um, but that was what I wore. And um, it's interesting though, because I, I don't wear those clothes anymore. <laughs> uh, and new seasons of life often come with a kind of change in wardrobe, perhaps your first job you knew you needed to buy some new clothes. Um, Perhaps um, a new life situation means the the old has gone away and and new things start to come. But clothes, even down to how we dress and how we um, look, can change with new seasons. I remember more than one conversation while I was doing college ministry with, with some of the guys talking to them about how they needed to buy a belt. And there was, there was a new season of adulthood coming <laughs> that they needed to get ready for. And, um, but, but new seasons have changed to them. Um, and this language of clothing and change are the metaphors of chapter three. It's all about a new time a new era, as it were. It's on Easter Sunday last week, I sought to summarize verses one through four that we read, right? By saying the resurrection matters not just for an afterlife, but it matters for your present life, right? When Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, he's not saying, hey, set your mind on the clouds, right? Start having dreams of angels, And if you could just sort of set your normal job aside and start reading the Bible all day long, every day, that's that's what it would mean. That's not what it would mean to set your mind on things that are above. He means very clearly that to put your minds on things above where Christ is has very practical implications for life. That somehow having been raised to new life is to affect your everyday life the way in which you live and operate in the world. To say it this way, you say, you have been raised to live resurrected. You've been raised with Christ to live resurrected, to live new. 
That's the case that he's making all through chapter 3 and even into the beginning of chapter 4 as he talks about living resurrected in certain practices of your life, living resurrected, living new in the way that you relate to family and the way that you approach work. He, he, he talks about it in a variety of settings that we are to live as those who are new. And so this morning, I got three simple points. I want to talk about new creation, new clothes, and new center. New creation, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. If you've got a, a paper Bible, go ahead and open up. You can follow along there. We're also going to try and have it up on here on the screen for you to follow along too. Verses 9 and 10, new creation. Verses 5 through 8 that I omitted for the child edit. Um, that is um, going to be new clothes. And then verses, uh, verse 11 is going to be the new center. New creation, new clothes, new center. If you're ready, if you're there, say, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. All right. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then jump down. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Save practices for a second. We'll get there later. And put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put to death, put off. Paul is saying, if you believe in Jesus, you have died. Right? And this passage is the call to cooperate with a new kind of Easter power that's already at work within you, within the Christian. And notice Paul is not, he's, he's, he's not saying lightly here. He's not like, hey, you know those kind of like things of earth that you get distracted with sometimes? Tr try and avoid those if you can. No, he's like, hey, kill them. He's like, you got to kill them. It's, it's, the, it's the Puritan pastor of old, John Owen, who said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that's what he's after here. He's saying, be killing sin, put to death the things that are earthly below, or they will be, in many ways, destroying you. I was struck by this on Wednesday during my gospel community gathering. Um, I had the joy of being at both gospel communities this last Wednesday. Um, it was a lot of fun to study these passages twice. But in, in the second conversation, there was somebody, a, a dear brother, who said, it's just that he says, you died. Like, you're dead. Like, I, I, you are dead. And he said it like, it must have been eight or ten times. And it's just like, it just like hit me fresh that somehow with Jesus, I went in the tomb. That I have died with him. And that my life is hidden with Christ in God. And if I've died with him, then all the things that were earthly about me have died as well. And therefore, I got to leave them in the grave. I got to leave the deadly things, leave the earthly things, leave the old things down in the tomb because I've been raised to live resurrected, to live a new kind of life. This is burial language for sure, but also it could be burial clothes. And then as the other verbs in the passage make clear, he's talking about actually taking off a kind of clothing and putting on something else. The verb behind this, this phrase, put off, is the same verb 
used in chapter 2, verse 15, to talk about Paul's or Jesus' triumph over the powers of sin and evil. Jesus has literally stripped them of their power. And that's what he's getting at here. It's the same variation of the form of verb in verse 11 of chapter 2 when he talks about you have been, you've been cut off, you have been circumcised. He's using that language that there is a spiritual circumcision, a kind not made without hands, a kind that God does to literally cut off and separate and strip the old you away. Galatians chapter 3 echoes the same theme along with another, uh, another bunch of passages in the New Testament. In the NIV, the New International Version, it says, for, for all of you were baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. He's saying you have to put off what is earthly and put on what is of Christ, what is heavenly. Put to death and put off are the two commands here in this passage. And we'll get to the practical piece of them in a minute. But first, do you see the other contrast? Right? Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Old self to new self. This is the, the second contrast that he's making there. And what he means by it is to say that in Christ, your position has changed. There's a change of position that has taken place, that Easter has begun a new era, and you are no longer over here. By faith, you are somewhere else. That in the empty tomb, that fallen humanity, sinful humanity was laid to rest. And then on Easter Sunday, a new kind of humanity, a new creation has come to life. New life means new creation. Jesus is literally a new creation, a new humanity that, that characterized by freedom and grace. Whereas the old humanity is characterized by fallen, broken, sin, rebellion. Paul's teaching the church, you belong to a new humanity. Self here, if you say the old self and the new self, is in some ways misleading. It could be almost too individualistic for this setting. Because the way that we hear that is very almost psychological. But Paul is after something deeper. The word here is anthropos. It's where we get anthropology, humanity. He's saying the old humanity is gone. And by, by Christ, a new humanity has come. And new humanity is not just a better version of you. Surely in Christ, you do have freedom in a, in a therapeutic sense, right? You will sense in your mind in your psyche, a kind of freedom that Jesus brings. But that's not all. And certainly in Christ, you have a freedom that is spiritual. Like you will sense within your soul because of Jesus, a kind of freedom. But, but what Paul is after here is a, a freedom that's far more comprehensive. He's saying that in Christ, your freedom is ontological. Like it gets down to the very being to your very existence, your whole existence has changed by faith in the resurrection. 
If anyone is in Christ, he says elsewhere, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Now, if we think about Superman for a minute, the parallel breaks down pretty quickly. But I think it could be helpful, all right? Think about it like this. Old humanity is in some ways like walking around as Clark Kent, constantly. Wearing the clothes, the suits, going to the daily planet to do your work, even though you are from another planet, but yet you're wearing the suit. And what Paul, I believe, is saying about our identity and our existence, down to who we are, is that in Christ, the real you is a Kryptonian superwoman or superman. Your very existence is different. And God has placed within you an otherworldly kind of power, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the grave. And what he's saying here to the church is that if this is you, church, you've got to take off the business suit. You've got to take off the newspaper man. And you've got to begin to live as your true self. You belong to another world. You have another home. You are another species, a new anthropos. There is the symbol of Easter and all of its power upon your chest. You have been raised to live resurrected, a new kind of human being. And that means you got to put off some things and you got to put on your cape. And to be sure, right, you have some kryptonite still in this life, all right? <laughs> like, it's not like there's, you're flawless or you have all power by any means. Um, but what he's saying is that if you believe in Jesus, you belong to another world and your very existence and being has changed. You've been raised to live resurrected. And not just as you do now, but increasingly so. He says, put off the old self with his practices and you've put on the new self, right? Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The, the new humanity has come alive and the old humanity is dead. The, the old humanity is really Adam. Adam's humanity. Remember him in the garden? in the way that he lived and operated and, and how he, he, he forsook God's word to go his own way. What he's saying now is that the head of the human race, the one who has been the, the beginning of all of humanity that exists, there is now a new head of the human race. His name is Jesus, and he is bringing about a new humanity for all who would come after him. Whereas in Adam, he fell into sin, bringing death and brokenness. Jesus has overcome sin and has been raised to new life. And whereas in Adam, Adam departed from God's word and into rebellion. But Jesus is the one who has kept God's word, even embodied it, offering to us reconciliation. Whereas Adam's sin brought separation, even rebellion, Jesus' sacrifice brings reconciliation to God. Union. New life means a new creation. And this verb, being renewed, is helpful because it means it's here. New creation is here, but it's active. It's still being rene renewed and coming in full. It's here already, 
but it's not in full. By faith, your place in Jesus's new humanity, it's permanent, it's there. But through faith, your renewal into the likeness, the resemblance of Jesus is not something that's permanent, that's something that's participatory, something that you actively engage in and grow increasingly like the Lord. New life means new creation, but it also means new clothes. Here we go. The unedited version. Verse five. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. And then he goes on to say, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. New life means new clothes because you have a new place in Jesus and new practices that come from Jesus. I can't talk about practices without thinking of Alan Iverson. I mean, because we are talking about practice, right? We talk about practice. Um, yes, we're talking about practice. The ways that you live and carry out your life. There is a change in practice that has happened because of Christ. And in this passage, verses five through eight, we have the practices that we need to put off. And then in verses 12 through 15, we have the practices we need to put on. I want to talk about put off this week, and we'll talk about put on next week. Because to live resurrected, you've got to put some stuff off. To live resurrected, you've got to take some things off. Let me show you these lists. Perhaps you missed it, but he does a list twice. There are five things in each of them. And he does so to summarize different areas of life that we often need to leave behind as we grow in Christ. Here's the first list in verse five. He says, whatever belongs to your earthly members, literally it means earthly members, whatever belongs to the earth, earthly in you. And then five things, sexual immorality, which is the Greek word porneia. It covers a whole host of different kinds of sexual sin and covers in its meaning every kind of sexual activity that exists outside of marriage between a man and a woman. That is the Bible's clear sexual ethic. And then impurity. Sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. Impurity is a companion word that intensifies it. It can be used simply to mean corruption, but oftentimes it's coupled with language about sexuality to convey the brokenness that can come in our lives sexually. And then lust is the third word. It could be trans, and lust is the third word, of course, running a three sort of in a row about the same topic. And then Paul steps back to say evil desire, that these practices sexually often come from a place of heart that is not good that is not of light, but is evil and is dark. And then he rounds it out with greed or covetousness, that these things come as we covet and desire and get greedy for something in an, in an inappropriate fashion. What he's getting at here is that earthliness 
sometimes come down to our members of our body. And he's asking us to put those off because not just your soul, but your body belongs to the Lord. That is the New Testament ethic. Put these things to death. Now, oddly, we have come to a point in our society where the church believes we are in uncharted territory when it comes to sexual ethics. This is not the case. Because the reality of the biblical story is that when God's people were delivered out of Egypt, he set them into a new land and gave them new practices that set them drastically apart from the sexual practices of the surrounding nations around them. They were odd birds in that time. And in fact, he gave them a very physical mark, circumcision, as a way of saying, hey, you are going to be cut off, distinct, separate, ethnically, and sexually from the practices of these surrounding nations. The same was true in the New Testament. When Paul came into a new town, a new city, a new part of the ancient world, their practices sexually were far different from what he was teaching. And in fact, many of the churches were so messy in this area that it, was, it would probably be shocking to us. Like there was so not a perfect and flawless sexual ethic in the first century, in the early church. Not at all, right? We have not arrived in any kind of new territory today, but we are actually in a very familiar ground where God sets apart his people to act differently in the world. And what Paul is saying in the last few of these, these, these words of the five, that not just is your physical action a part of the problem, but your heart's condition that bodily desires come from heart cravings. They come from idolatry, where the human heart worships and serves a created thing rather than the creator itself. Jesus goes perhaps right for the heart. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, whoever looks with lustful intent the same word here in our passage is evil desire. At a woman commits adultery. Jesus' sexual ethic was here. And Paul is saying to live resurrected, you have to put that off. Now, do you agree with the Bible's sexual ethic? Do you wrestle in your own life with living this way? in actions or in thoughts or in the desires of your heart. Listen, if you do, let me tell you, you are so not alone. You are not alone in the scope of church history and you are not alone in this church presently as someone who has sincere questions about the Bible's teaching in this area or as someone who has sincere struggles in living out the Bible's teaching in this area. You are not alone. This is a common area of needed putting off and putting on the character of Christ. And the challenge is that in our time, there is such a swimming against the tide in this area. And to even go on top of that, there is an undertow that has some serious bite in terms of guilt and shame. 
And I know some of you have felt those things. And so I hope you see here in this passage both the call to honesty, he's saying put it off, and the call to hope. Could you just for a moment see the two things he's saying about death, right? He's saying put this stuff to death. But what else is he saying? He's saying Christ has been put to death. You have to hold both of those things together, that Christ has died for all of us who have some form, and all of us have some form of sexual brokenness. And then he's saying, because Christ has been put to death and come to life, would you put that to death and would you come to new life? There's hope and there's honesty here. Not just put off sins of your members, but Paul goes right for it. He says, hey, put off the sins of your mouth as well. Here it is in the second list, right? Put them all away. Rid yourself in some translations. Here's verse eight. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. In a similar way, the first three, they're almost impossible to delineate the differences between what he's getting at there when he talks about anger, wrath, and malice. There's a sort of a summary happening in those three terms of the heart that leads to sins of speech. Anger often makes us not be able to control our tongue, right? This kind of wrath or desire for harm that is malice causes us to sometimes fly off the handle about someone or to slander who they are and their character. What he's saying here is that our heart, as Jesus taught as well, comes out in our words. And we think, and I believe this is probably a problem broadly in the church, that what is corrupting the church, what is destroying the church, is sins of members. They're obvious, and you can see a, a church leader or church members who have sins of the body, right? They're glaring. But the problem Paul often faced was not sins of members, but sins of the mouth. What was destroying churches then and now, are those who cannot tame the tongue, those who spread division and strife, those who talk ill about others behind their back. And so Paul's real question to us is, hey, when the church is supposed to be a thing of beauty with relationships of beauty because Christ is relationally beautiful and he treats people with dignity and honor fully as made in God's own image and likeness, valuable in every respect, even when they are so far from the Lord, broken in any kind of sin, Jesus treats them humanly. Yet we struggle to do that. What he's asking us is, can we address conflict honestly and humbly with others? Can, can we stop our mouth instead of run our mouth about others? Can we deflect gossip when it's happening in the workplace? Can we believe the best about those whom we disagree with? Can we be generous with those who have differences from us? Can we have a kind of beauty relationally that befits our resurrected king? 
not just sins of members, but the sins of the mouth, with the common problem of a heart that is deceitful beyond all, all that we can fathom. The common problem with um, a, a root that needs to be pulled up. Jesus says, from the root of the heart come the fruit of the actions and the speech. And Jesus came to give us a new heart. And not just a heart, but a new whole self, a new humanity, such that we could live resurrected. And to live resurrected, you got to take some things off. Tertullian, the second century North African church father, saw clearly um, the conflict that the church had between their practices and the practices of the surrounding culture. He saw the differences between the way that Christians were to live as in their members and with their mouths. And you know what he said? He said, rather than a sort of like embrace all attitude or an accept all version of love, that Christians need to embrace a kind of resurrection power love, a kind of love that stands for truth and a kind of love that overflows constantly in grace such that the surrounding world would look at our practices in speaking to one another, our practices sexually, bodily, and go, man, look how they love one another. Look at how they honor one another. And that it would be the behaviors, the resurrection life among us, that would be the clue. New life means new creation. It means new clothes. And as we close, it means a new center. This could be a whole sermon on its, on its own. It's so beautiful. Um, here, verse 11, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. First word, here. Not somewhere else, but here. He's talking about place in Christ, position in Christ. Faith has brought about a change for the church. Here, in union with Jesus, there is not Greek and Jew. Contrast there. Circumcised, uncircumcised. Contrast there. Barbarian, Scythian, one up there. They're not contrasted, but the Scythians were a whole nother level of barbarian, a whole nother level of uncultured in the Greco-Roman world. And then slave and free. Christ is all and in all. What's he saying here? Is he saying that, as he says elsewhere, male and female, he's saying that there's, there's no gender differences anymore. Is he saying there are no ethnic differences anymore? Is he saying there are no class differences anymore? No. But he's saying that those things in light of the center that Jesus is become secondary and actually get honored rather than used as tools to leverage oneself. Because Christ is the center, the way and the function of power has changed and shifted. When he says Christ is all, he's giving a nod to the first chapter when it says Christ is the head of all rule and authority. All power is Jesus's. He is the creator king. He is the redeemer king. Jesus is all. And then he says, Jesus as center means that power by appearances is no longer. It means that power and standing by accomplishment is no more. It means that power by cultural norms fades away. 
power by your own religious practice, power of any form over another as an approach to life has faded for the Christian. Because real power is in Jesus. And there is no Jesus and. Where we say, Jesus and a political position. Jesus and a cultural tradition. Jesus and a way of living. We all of a sudden step away from Jesus all. And Paul is saying, Christ is all. And shockingly, he's saying, Christ is in all. And if all of these different kinds of people in the early church were united to Jesus by faith and Christ was living within him, this new resurrected life, then how, if they were united to him, could they not be united to one another? Union with Christ produced this breathtaking unity within the church. It did so in the first century. And it should in our time as well. How's this make, how does this happen? Well, I think it's messy. Um, but if you're asking where does power come from to live in unity, or where does power come from in order to put off what is old and on what is new, the answer that Paul is giving is that power comes from Christ. And it comes from Christ within you. And miracle of all, Jesus is the one who has gone this road before us. The gospel writers are clear that he was the one who was stripped and put off the old. In fact, in his own crucifixion, the same language, the same verbiage about him having clothing torn off him and being shamed is the same language Paul is using to talk about the victory Jesus has won in chapter two and the kind of new resurrected life we are to live in chapter three. In all appearances, the stripping of Jesus that happened on Good Friday and on the cross was a defeat. But God had a different plan in mind. Right? On the cross, Jesus put all the powers and practices of sin upon his shoulders and there, in apparent defeat, laid them in the grave dead, stripping them of their power and hold upon our lives. I mean, what are you going to do with a God like this? Who says, I'll take the, the worst thing imaginable that could have happened in the world, the death of the Son of God, the perfect one, the loving one, the righteous one, and I'll transform it into the best thing that's ever happened to our world so that you, even when you've been in worse places or when in, been in bad practices, might die with him and rise with him to a new way of life. In the stripping of Jesus, he not only died, but was raised. In the apparent defeat, all of a sudden, he was flipped into triumphant victory. One that we share in as Christians by faith. New life means new center. It means new clothes. It means new creation. Because you and I, if we've been raised with Christ, are to live resurrected with Christ in a new way of life.